All right. Thank you for those WhatsApp voice notes. Somebody else on the WhatsApp line says, uh, good morning to you and the team. The buck stops with leadership. Let us hold this government to account, and that includes Cyril. If it was under Zuma, everyone would have been calling for his fall. May the media also hold the police to account so they arrest the Phoenix murderers. That's one view coming through on the WhatsApp line this morning. All right. We're going to turn our attention and focus on the role of social media in fueling the violence, in fueling the unrest that we have seen in the country. Associate Professor at the University of Cape Town's Graduate School of Business, Cameron Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It, it's been quite interesting to watch the, at least the, the comments coming through from uh, some of the security cluster ministers and how they have been struggling to really articulate fully the kind of role that social media played in fueling the the unrest that we have seen. At first, they said, you know, they by and large ignored the the extent to which what was being said on social media would in fact be reliable information. But retrospectively, it looks like, you know, the the majority of, of what was said in terms of the road closures and the areas that were being targeted, that would be targeted, it looks like that that was actually correct. Yes, Cathy. Um, you know, I think there's a kind of a misunderstanding of the role of social media, which, um, for example, are actually on Twitter, mm. uh, which is I saw that statistic in one of the discussions I, I, I listened to. And so there's a tendency to think that it's not really representative of what's going on in society. Mm. But the way to think about it is rather that social media serves as an early warning system for what may potentially spill over into society, particularly where social media is driving at pre-existing social divisions and fractures. When when we look at social media as that tool, and I think it's an important distinction to make because many people grapple with what is what they should consider and take seriously that they see on social media and how that affects their lives directly? Well, I think whenever you hear any kind of incendiary um, incitements to violence, for example, mm. or racism or hate speech, I think then it's time to sit up and take notice. And what we do in, in our organization is we, mm. we monitor this. And whenever we see a, a real quick uptick in it, that usually serves as a predictor of, um, of, 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 of what's going, what kind of narrative is going mm. to start dominating in real-world conversations. Mm-hmm. Are you able to give me examples of, of how this has happened previously? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it with the xenophobic discourse. In fact, um, you know, social media uh, played a, a big role in stoking the xenophobic violence that we witnessed you know, over the past uh, 10 years. Um, more recently, last week, on the 15th of July, we picked up um, the hashtag Phoenix Massacre went through a massive uptick from about less than 50 tweets to over 600 just from 12 o'clock that morning alone. I mean, 12 o'clock at night, you know. Mm. And around 9 o'clock, another hashtag started trending, which was, you know, March to finish, March to finish. And so whenever you see those kind of dramatic upticks, you, you know that um, it's 
it's going to stoke a real-world reaction. Who is driving the information that we are seeing on social media that is playing towards the divisions in society that is contributing to the further polarization of our society? That's a great question. You know, last year we we picked up a a coordinated network, which we were convinced was paid, that was stoking uh, xenophobic discourse in South Africa. So it's putting out xenophobic messaging and narratives. And earlier this year, we picked up a network that also seemed coordinated. Um, and, you know, we've provided a report on this for why we think it's coordinated. Be- that, and this network was behind the radical economic transformation discourse, but largely on the side of uh, those who have been accused of, of state capture, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And they were the most active network over the past week. Over the past week, we've never seen such high volumes of traffic as we saw mm. on social media. Mm. But this RET network, were, I mean, one of them tweeted over 1,500 incendiary tweets. Um, and there's a, they were very active in both celebrating the unrest as well as promoting it. When we talk about a network, what what are we really referencing there? Is it a, a group of people? Is it accounts that are being controlled by one person? How do you define that? That's a great question. It's it's basically the same model that's been used in marketing, which is to create influencer pods. So influencer pods will share material between each other. They're usually paid, and they 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 share material between each other to amplify the kind of messaging that they want to get out. Mm. And then ordinary people start joining the conversation and um, then it becomes an organic conversation. So it's, it's straight out of the marketing playbook, actually. So, 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 so the people who effectively would be paying for these, these networks, are they the ones that start these accounts and tweet from these accounts? or you post from these accounts on on Facebook, or are they the ones who would find people who already have some kind of following and pay them to tweet uh, in line with whatever messaging it is that they want to get out there? It's a mixture of both. So they Mm. do find influencers who've got, uh, you know, followers that they can reach at the touch of a button. But then we also see, and this is when we know that there's suspicious activity going on, when we see old accounts that have been lying dormant for a long time suddenly get activated and mm. start tweeting out huge volumes all of a sudden. Mm. That's when we know that there's something fishy going on. The State Security Department and the Police Department have said that there were 12 accounts 12 social media accounts that they were investigating. I hope I'm not mistaken on this, uh, for for their role in as far as social media is concerned. I think it was between 10 and 12. I might be wrong on on, on that figure. Um, But but the point is that they were investigating these accounts as having been the primary accounts for instigating and fueling the violence. From the work that you do, the research that you have done, are you able to bring the the instigation to down to just 12 accounts? We, we can't confirm that yet. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, there's a, there's, there are a lot of accounts that are involved in this. Mm. So we're going to have to do some careful analysis before we can actually put out um, a, a, 
a well-established and, and well-vetted view on exactly who the key drivers of this were online. When it comes to who the true owners of these accounts are, are, are we able to tell? Do we know whether these are fake accounts, whether they're actual people, real people who can be held accountable for the work that is coming out of these accounts? Well, they can be tracked, but that's not the work that we do. Mm. Uh, mm. We don't try to track the individual behind the account. We track you know, the narratives that are emerging and who's involved in those narratives. Mm. Um, but they can be tracked, and, and, and organizations like the Digital Forensic Labs, for example, have tracked, uh, for example, Safisa Gwala, uh, who was behind the Ulerato Pele account. That was putting out the xenophobic message. Yes, I remember. I remember that account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also the Tracy Zilla account, which was an EFF member who was posing as a racist white woman. Mm, mm, mm. And, and it seems very easy for people to be able to do that. Yes, it is, and I, I think there's a responsibility that the platforms have to the public which is to ensure that, you know, particularly when people are paid to put out messaging, that they should declare that they're being paid to. I know they do this in the advertising work. They say they've been, you know, they're providing an endorsement and it's a paid endorsement for whatever they're advertising. But we don't have the same when it comes to political speech. And that for me is very problematic. Mm -hmm. Do we have a breakdown of the conversations that have been had on social media, let's say in the past two, uh, three weeks or so, that have been part of the national discourse, but that are in fact conversations that did not begin organically. And uh, I'm saying this because of what you said earlier about uh, what you described as an RET network and the extent to which uh, you know, you'll have one account tweeting a hundred, a thousand five hundred tweets uh, on a subject, and this network of 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 accounts basically starting and creating this conversation, and then obviously the rest of us just get caught up in it. Yeah, we definitely had uh, evidence of you know um, the RET network getting involved in you know the conversations around Jacob Zuma and uh, Ace Matashule but also generally putting out the rhetoric of RET, you know, which is that around white monopoly capital, you know, accusing the president of being captured by white monopoly capital, also putting out messaging that, uh, uh, you know, for land expropriation without compensation, for example, you know, pushing both, uh, both legitimate kind of political narratives in combination with conspiracist innuendo, if mm. I can put it that way. So they combine it so that it's harder to tell the, you know, it, 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 so it's harder to tell if it's just a straight conspiracy or not. Often leave the article as evidence of the view that they're putting out, even though they often don't match up. Yeah. Do, 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 we, do we know if there are people who then come up with counter narratives and use the same strategy to counter yes. what 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 is being said. Yes, in fact, we did. We we haven't done a comprehensive analysis on it, but we did pick up, you know, um, you know, activity that's counter to these, and some of it does appear organized. But a lot of the counter narratives to the unrest 
last week mm. were organic. It was really, you know, it was all about community standing together, mm. protecting you know, a sense of ownership, talking about unity. A lot of big influencers played a role in putting out you know, inspirational messages. There were TikTok videos and posters. And so, you know, uh, that didn't seem organized. That seemed very much uh, an organic response. And even to the xenophobic uh, discourse, eventually there was quite an, a big organic reaction to it, which, which basically tempered down the xenophobic uh, discourse. How do we as social media users try and ensure that we don't fall prey to effectively people that are online with us sharing the same platforms, but they have their own uh, agenda behind why they want us to participate in certain conversations? Yes, I think the awareness that we need to grow is to know when our triggers are being pushed. You know, society has certain fears, biases, sentiments, fractures that are very easy to, to figure out with the kind of big data that we have nowadays. And so the way I think about it is social media is kind of like being behind a screen is the same as being behind uh, the wheel of a car. It's Mm. easy to go into road rage (laughs) because you're not dealing with an actual human being. So it's really just important to start growing an awareness of where your fears and your biases or your prejudices are being, your your trigger points are are being pushed. But also just to, you know, verify what you get online. You know, go to Africa Fact, uh, Africa Check, for example. It's a great resource. Also, go and look at what's in the mainstream media, traditional media, where you have good journalists, and try to verify the information that's in front of you. Mm. Um, You know, this is also for COVID-19 disinformation as well, because that's actively going on all around the world. One of the things that we have seen, and I think it's really provided an environment where these, effectively, these narratives that are being formulated in in different hubs and that that are being shared by certain networks for whatever reasons, um, what it has also done is that it has contributed to the mistrust, in particular, of, of the media and questions about whether the media is actually pandering to certain interests, whether they, they can actually be, be trusted. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, over the past 10 years or so, public confidence globally, but particularly in South Africa, has declined in all our core institutions, which is government, media, business, and civil society. Now, those are the key institutions <laughs> that, uh, you know, produce a democracy in mm-hmm. addition to others, but they're critical for, for a good democracy. And because public distrust has grown so much, it's opened up the door for those who can manipulate us with populist narratives, with scapegoating to manipulate us. And so, you know, there are some parts of the media as well who are themselves are involved in putting out badly vetted stories and even mm. disinformation. Mm. You know, the story of the decouplets comes to mind. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, in some ways it's warranted, you know, to keep a healthy distrust. But I think you can cross-reference. If you find several media articles, for example, which, you know, you can triangulate between them, then you can say, no, this is a reliable message that I'm getting, you know. 
are people willing to do that work? Is that something that you see people doing, making the effort to do that work? We're going to have to become educated consumers mm. of both media and social media. You know, just like we did under apartheid, where there was a very dominant discourse that won over large sections of the population. Uh, we don't remember it now, but people used to talk about separate development as if it was a natural thing. Uh, we were also duped then. There's always going to be propaganda, so we need to be vigilant. We need to be informed. Most critically, we need to have conversations with each other, you know, not just on social media where you can only have, you know, a set amount of characters, but actually start talking to each other as communities, actually meeting each other. <sighs> and I think that's how we figure out what's going on in the world around us. How much more difficult is it for uh, professionals like yourself to track down what is happening on WhatsApp versus uh, your Twitter and, and your Facebook. And I say that because a great deal of the organizing that is related to the unrest also seems to have been taking place on WhatsApp, at least if some of the, the reports that have come out are, are anything to go by. That's a very good question, of course, because WhatsApp is encrypted. Mm. You know, uh, it's, it's not like it's publicly available information. But what we find is, you know, generally, what's circulating on WhatsApp does tend to get around. I think it would only be with real small groups who are highly trained and disciplined that information won't get out. But uh, we are actually getting a lot of stuff, um, you know, just being passed around on WhatsApp. And it ends up coming to us as well. And so we go and look at social media to see if it's trending there as well. Many people have called for uh, more, I suppose, regulation of, of, of the Internet, more regulation of platforms such as Facebook, such as Twitter, and the responsibility that they have in particular where information is inflammatory, where it is inciting violence like we have seen. Have we seen these institutions be able to live up to that expectation? And is it actually something that we, we actually want? We, um, you know, the idea of that freedom of speech, in as much as it has its responsibilities, um, is going to be in the hands of regulation? That's a great question. Um, you know, the, the freedom of speech is balanced against other rights. It's not an absolute right. You know, you do get free speech fundamentalists, and in the U.S., actually, online free speech is uh, free speech is, is is more guarded than free speech in the real world, for example. And 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 the freedom of speech is very it's one of the core things to producing a democracy as well. So we have to be very careful about the kind of interventions we make. That being said, the platforms themselves are are usually reactionary. Mm. It's after things have gone wrong that they start reacting, and that's not good enough. Mm. I think it's been shown that they don't have the ability to regulate their platforms themselves. Now, there are different views on how to regulate. You do get self-regulating codes, for example, and they've done this in the influencer marketing uh, pods in advertising, where they have a, a code that that if you want to be an influencer who's advertising products online, you have a code that you subscribe to. But in other places, they do have government regulation around us, and people have actually been charged uh, for not declaring their interests, for example. So 
Uh, my personal view, and, and people will differ on this, but I think that we do need to start thinking about how we legislate because social media platforms have their own set of principles and values and rules. But different contexts across the world vary so greatly, you can't just apply it unilaterally. So there has to be some level of um, legislation and regulation that comes from the state to mediate social media. But key to this is without stamping out uh, free speech. But I think more designed towards um, countering manipulation mm. online. Is there anything that I, as as Kathy, as just a user of, of 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 social media, can do to check whether the conversations I'm part of, whether the conversations I'm participating in, are those that have been generated out of some of these networks, or are conversations that are happening organically amongst the population of the country? I think more work has to be done to make this easier for people. Mm. You know, not everyone's got the time to go and read one of the reports we produce. But we're making a very strong effort to make the public aware of it. So we're publishing regularly our findings in, in newspapers, and we put reports onto our website. But I think we need to do a lot more to, to enable people to, at a touch of a button, start verifying where the information they're getting comes from, mm. whether it's been manipulated in any way, you know, like a confidence level. And, mm. you know, should I trust this 50% yeah. or 40%? Yeah. Because I think I think that also that that could well change the nature of of the kind of engagement that we see. Um, even though I may feel strongly about it, if I know that somebody is pushing me to say something about this issue right now because it benefits their interest versus it being an organic conversation, it could well have an impact on whether or not I I participate in that conversation. Absolutely, and I think we need to do a lot more work in this space to make that easier for people, um, you know, and, and that takes money and funding <laughs> to be able to do so, to be quite frank. Mm. Uh, and this is a very fast-moving terrain. Things are changing all the time. The tactics change. Uh, it, it's one that you've got to be keeping, you know, keeping up with day-to-day. So basically the people behind these accounts are not resting at all. They're on it 24-7. Yes, very much so. And I think that's why most countries around the world have been on the back foot when it came to their politics being hijacked through the use of social media, you know, um, because it's very fast moving. Um, it's, it's an exciting space to be in, but it's also a very scary space to be in. And I think a lot more organizations like ours need to be grown and, and funded so that we can do this around the world effectively and, and basically safeguard our public. I mean, who, who is protecting us mm. from what's going on social media? You know, we can get out and protect our malls, you know, physically, but who's protecting us online? Cameron Peter, let me thank you so much for your time on the show today. He's an associate professor at the University of Cape Town's Graduate School of Business. It's after 11. Luanda Maume has your latest news.